Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to a Good Football Show's Week 10 Recap Podcast. My name is Pat Corain, and in just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by all of the recappers from NBC Sports Edge who watched the games, blurb the games, and got all that additional context beyond the box score. It's so key in determining what's going to happen next week. Let's get to the games. The Patriots defeated the Browns 45-7. to The Patriots now averaging 37.5 points per game over the last four weeks. That's the most in the NFL. And Kyle Dvorak, it's Ramondre Stevenson. I knew you were going to be so excited to talk about this game. I was like, wow, uh, Ramondre Stevenson had a a good game. And then I realized what the next thing on my to-do list was. And I was (laughs) like, it's going to be a fun time. And he looked like, like, I don't know if you watched it, but he looked as good as you and anyone who you know was high on him over the summer would have wanted him to look. He's just breaking off chunk gain after chunk gain. Also involved as a pass catcher, which is something we don't really see from Damian Harris very much. So when you have Ramondre in the lineup, he actually going forward, you know, I, Damian Harris probably should be back next week. You know, concussion, not a long uh, injury. But whenever you now have Ramondre in the lineup, he's probably just going to project straight up better than Damian Harris would have. And you also, when Damian Harris comes back, can't look at what Ramondre did this week. And last week, too, he played the exact same way, where he just looks so difficult to bring down and gets up to speed so quickly that I don't think you can project Damian Harris for his normal role going forward. I still think, given his body of work, he's probably the lead back when he returns, but it's not as clear-cut anymore. And Ramondre, when he is the starter, is just a higher ceiling option. For sure, because he has the versatility that you mentioned. Uh, he did get five targets here, went four for 14 as a receiver. So not a huge receiving day, but five targets is not something we normal, normally see from Damian Five Harris. targets led the team. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, it's a great point You know, in a game where Mac Jones only had 23 attempts. And then he gets 100 yards on the ground. He, uh, he got used, I saw, close to the goal line a couple times, got stopped right at the end of the game. Um, and then also, I think, had a drop uh, right near the goal line. But he scores two touchdowns still on 20 for 100. Yeah, I think there was – I was, like, legitimately concerned that, like, J.J. Taylor or Brandon Bolden could have actually split this role with him. I mean, he was 
benched and made inactive for J.J. Taylor earlier in the year. So the fact that he just so utterly dominated this backfield, it wasn't that he just put up fantasy numbers, right? It's always good to have a good RB1. I think he's, uh, you know, in all formats, the RB1 of the week as things stand right now. That's always nice, but it's the usage, that backbone of usage where he doesn't really split work at all in terms of the carries and he gets more targets than Damian Harris does. That's really what matters for Manje going forward. In the short term, it may not matter too much, but in the long term, it does really, you know, make him an exciting dynamic player a player that if the situation ever comes up again we just have to be supremely confident that he is like at a minimum an rb2 like at the, at the most floor yeah and, and i agree with you that harris i mean harris has actually been quite good as a yeah. two-down rusher shown some bursts so he's not going away at all uh, but stevenson i think would kind of be like a an explosive rushing element behind him and then and receiving work as well so you know it, it, this backfield is a whole lot more interesting with a versatile guy like stevenson back there uh, anything to note here from the Patriots otherwise? I mean, as you mentioned, Stevenson led the backfield into or led the entire team in targets. Mac Jones only 23 attempts, goes 198 yards, three touchdowns, zero interceptions. Uh, well, I guess there's probably something we should note here, right? I think you know what there is to note. It happened. It finally happened. Sound the <laughs> alarms, ring the fire bells. Jacoby Myers gets into the end zone in. You know, not to discredit, it was actually a really awesome play too. But, you know, it was complete garbage time. I think it came from Brian Hoyer. The game had been well over. But he actually made a really nice play where Brown's cornerback, Troy Hill, tries to make a stop. He shrugs off, uh, shrugs it off at or maybe a yard or two beyond the line of scrimmage, shrugs off the tackle, and dives in. So it was, uh, it was a great splash play to finally mark his trip into the end zone. I believe before this game, it was 1,522 yards he had gone without getting into wow. the end zone. It was the NFL record for the history of the league. No player had gone that many yards without a touchdown. Finally broken, so we got that. He didn't dominate the targets, but it was kind of a weird game where just whatever Mac Jones wanted to do, he did. He beat the Browns deep. He beat them short. He beat them on the screens. He beat them on the outside. So it kind of didn't matter who he was throwing to. I'm not you know, too concerned about the target share. I'm more just excited for the guy to have finally gotten in the end zone. And I think going forward, uh, he probably still looks as that sort of wide receiver three. He leads his team in targets, but it's not the craziest pass, passing attack to be targeting. I'm really hoping. I'm happy for Jacoby Myers. Uh, it's great to see that he gets in the end zone. Kind of a cool like record here. You know, not something you'd want, but it's still kind of an interesting footnote and everything. But what my hope now is that he gets in the end zone next week and the week after, so that like in three or four weeks from now, we're going Jacoby Myers. Man, he scored three touchdowns over his last four <laughs> games. Got he's a he's a touchdown scorer now. Yeah, no, uh, like in three weeks, like, uh, you know, he's due for regression. You can't really play him. He's scoring too many touchdowns. Exactly. Let's move over to the Browns side here. We had another uh, fill-in running back, Dearness Johnson. Uh, he had a pretty good day, not quite the day that Stevenson had. He almost gets 100 yards, 99 yards on the ground on 19 rushes, has eight targets, went seven for 58 through the air, and the game script here flipped quickly, right? So it was kind of interesting to see him still salvage his day, have a nice day, despite the Browns trailing the whole game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you can read into what this means for Dion Darius Johnson, the player, because they were without Kareem Hunt, who's injured. They were without Nick Chubb, COVID. They were without Demetri Felton, COVID, and without John Kelly, COVID. I think those are all the guys. Uh, you know, they did not give Brian Hill a touch. I didn't see him on the field, but honestly, you know, if he was on the field, it didn't matter. He did not see the ball. He was hardly on the field if he was. I don't think he was. Johnny Stanton, their fullback, I believe, got a wildcat snap early in the game, but essentially 
they they function as if they had one running back. So I'm not sure exactly what this says about Dearness Johnson's usage going forward. He did see a handful of targets after his big game when Kareem Hunt was out. It was like three targets the next game. So maybe he picks up a little bit of that Kareem Hunt role. But I think this is more of a sign of the position the Browns were put in. But he looked good. I mean, he had 56 or 58 yards on the very first drive. And I mean, it was a few minutes in and he was on pace for like, you know, 400 yards or something absolutely silly. And had the game gone the way the Browns wanted it to, they would have been pushing him to 200 yards because that is exactly what he looked capable of doing. And that's the philosophy they want to play where they hold their opponents to low scores and they just dominate you at the running backs. They have a good offensive line. They have even down to Johnson talent at the running back position, but it didn't come together obviously because they could not stop new England. And he salvaged it. Like you said, with a really good receiving line on this side of the ball or this side of the game, the running back also led the team in, uh, in targets as well. So he made the most of a, uh, a pretty incredible opportunity really playing with, he was the only running back essentially, but he, he looked awesome in it. So if we ever get another spot start from him, that's two spot starts and like 323 yards from scrimmage or something from him. It, it's probably a rare scenario that this type of thing ever happens again, but should it happen, you know, he's like a, a complete lock in, in cash games. He's a complete lock in your season long leagues. He just looks like a legit, like a, a legit running back in the NFL, despite having a pretty humble beginning. This is an AF runner running a four, eight forty. Yeah, I wonder if they, feel, you know, actually had some trade calls for him before the deadline because he does look, he just like really passes the eye test. Talk to me about Baker Mayfield's injury here. Yeah, so he hurt, uh, you know, it's tough to tell exactly what happened. He just took like a complete shot to it looked like the midsection, although maybe his knee got clipped in it because they did say it was a knee injury in the, it's like the turn of the third, fourth quarter. Uh, the game was well over. I think at that point it was 31 points, if I remember the score correctly, the deficit. There was no chance of them coming back, especially with the way he was playing. So he was on the sideline after a trip to the medical tent. He looked to be in a lot of pain, but he was on the sideline after a short stint in the medical tent, still with his pads on, so it didn't look like his day was technically over. Had something happened to Case Cam, they probably would have forced him to go back in and hand it off a few more times. No guarantees that he's healthy, but at least it wasn't like he left the game, got ruled out. It certainly wasn't that. You could easily argue that he probably just sat on the sidelines because the game was well out of hand. And there was no coming back to salvage what an awful day it was for him. The stats don't show a truly atrocious atrocious day as a touchdown interception, but he had two potential interceptions that ultimately landed on the ground instead of in defenders' hands. A bunch of like unnecessarily risky throws, like short, tight window throws that weren't going to gain much anyways. And uh, ultimately, the only touchdown goes to Austin Hooper, who I think is season high is 42 yards. So really, it's hard to take away much from the Brown side of the football other than that Baker Mayfield... I mean, he's got a ceiling. I, you know, he's got the multi-touchdown ceiling when he really gets in these exciting shootouts. But other than that, it's a really unappealing player to target for your fantasy leagues, assuming he's even healthy, which he's probably healthy given, uh, you know, how the game ended. They didn't need him to play. But even then, the injury, it's just another in the long line of injuries he suffered. So it was on all fronts, a negative, disappointing day from Baker. What was like kind of the the culprit here as to why there was such little production here in the passing. I mean, I mean, Jarvis Landry, five targets goes four for 26. You mentioned Hooper gets in the end zone. He went four for 25 on five targets. Dearness Johnson led the team in targets. It's kind of like a pretty similar box score to the Patriots side where they're just rolling the whole time, except the Browns are getting rolled on and they don't really have any receiving production. Donovan Peoples Jones has one for 16 on five targets. Rashard Higgins did not have a catch on one target. David Joku, one for 11 on four targets. I mean, there's just nothing here. What was, uh, like, were they just sacking him? Were they just under pressure? Why Why was Baker just in, unable to get anything going and then Keenum after him? 
Yeah, I mean, their drives were pretty consistently stalling. He wasn't, I mean, they did take as a team five sacks. It's way more than you'd want, although it's nothing truly insane. It shouldn't, I don't think that type of, you know, five sacks shouldn't hold you to seven points. You can fight through that if you have the playmaking ability. But really, I mean, this was the case oftentimes with Odell Beckham, so you can't really blame it on this. But really, when your top receiver in terms of someone who can stretch the field is either Donovan Peoples-Jones or David Njoku, and you can't connect with them, the offense is completely reliant. And it's not normally, you know, it's not even normally supposed to be like this. You just want to break long runs. But in this scenario, you can't because you're losing. The offense is completely reliant on dump-offs to the running back, dump-offs to Jarvis Landry, who connected four for 26, uh, you know, dump-offs to Austin Hooper. You are just generating so few yards on every play mm. because, one, the Donovan Peoples-Jones shots weren't working, and, two, the completions are so – they have so little inherent value because it's a four-yard – you know, dump off to Jarvis Landry. So it's sort of like once you know that uh, you are down and then your deep shots aren't working, this team has their like play volatility so tightly distributed around like four to five yard plays that they really seem like the opposite of a comeback style team. It seems like that is the worst possible scenario to put this team in. If Baker's playing well, that's probably not the case because we've seen big Donovan Peoples-Jones games, but if really that's their one out, maybe David Njoku is sort of a second out to having explosive plays. Without that connection, it seems like there's no ability for this team to generate 15-yard chunk plays, and that's not even asking a lot. Yeah, classic front-running team. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Kyle Dvorak, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Washington defeated the Buccaneers 29-19 to in a game that had a drive lasting 10 minutes and 26 seconds, the longest drive by an NFL team this season. And Denny Carter, that sucked a lot of the fantasy goodness out of this game. I thought you were going to just stop at that sucked uh, because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it did. It truly did. It, uh, it it shaped up to maybe be kind of a back and forth fourth quarter where Tom Brady and the Bucks were desperate to score. Uh, Washington had so, shown some cracks in the secondary, especially on a 40 yard touchdown uh, to Mike Evans. So it, it, it looked like that game might be salvaged, but the Bucks could not stop Taylor Heineke and the juggernaut football team offense on third downs on that final drive. It was 19 plays. It was never ending. They converted four third downs, uh, including one where Heineke took off out of the pocket. It just was un unbelievable. And it basically made it so that uh, everybody in this game had an either mediocre or terrible fantasy day, except for, of course, Antonio Gibson, who scores two touchdowns on 24 carries, only had 64 yards against the very tough Bucks uh, front seven. Yeah, 2.7 yards per carry, but gets two touchdowns. And this was kind of like the the floor that we thought we might have with Antonio Gibson yeah. way back in August, you know, and when we thought different things about him. Um, but, you know, he had two targets here as well, two for 14, but the touchdown equity, kind of a, an old school Antonio Gibson if you <laughs> game, if yes. you will. Yeah, classic. Though he's a, only a second-year player. <laughs> yeah yeah it, and uh it was it was mckissick in the passing game um he he drew four targets caught all four of them for 35 yards i i was uh kind of excited about mckissick i thought he was in a good spot here assuming the football team saw a neg negative game script of course they they led throughout they led throughout this game there was never a time when the bucks led which is just amazing considering the bucks were nine and a half or ten point favorites uh coming into the contest uh, so it was it was Gibson all day. So it, it, it looks like this is not the first time I've thought this, but it looks like Washington wants to 
just completely play keep away when, when they can. Okay. And to turn Heineke into a game manager when they can. And the Bucks with the poor, with some poor offensive play and some, you know, so, so defensive play gave them that opportunity. It's a very fragile way to approach the game and it's not going to lead to many wins for the football team, but it worked today uh, to much to the detriment of Terry McLaurin and, and the rest of the uh, fantasy relevant players in this game. I mean, if I had Taylor Heineke as my quarterback and I'm going against Tom Brady and someone asked if I could delete 10 minutes from the game, I would yeah. 100% do that. I, oh, I yeah. It makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. From a real football standpoint, this is a this is a situation where our our fantasy desires uh, are are going right up against the the real football, the, the reality football of what Ron Rivera and the Washington football team is trying to do, which is trying to eke out wins with a, with a, a subpar quarterback who is all over the place, you know, when they're forced into pass heavy game script. So Heineke, you know, was limited to some extent, but um, he does get eight targets out to Terry McLaurin, six um, to Carter, to mm-hmm. DeAndre Carter. Uh, four to Ricky Seals Jones. Talk to me about the the receiving game here for Washington. Yeah, so DeAndre Carter for the second straight game has over fifty yards and a touchdown. Uh, kind of becoming something of a thing outside of Terry McLaurin in this Washington offense. Uh, it, not not reliable by any means, but perhaps so. Uh, like a wide receiver three going forward uh, with Curtis Samuel out and Diami Brown hampered by a, a lingering knee issue. Um, you know, Carter has definitely separated himself from Adam Humphreys as the wide receiver too. Now, uh, as for tight ends, Ricky Seals Jones looked to be on his way to a really nice game here Had three catches for 30 yards on four targets, uh, and a critical drop by the way, um, before he hurt his hip, uh, it looked to be fair on the fairly serious side. He needed help getting off the field. Um, at, at that point, someone named Bates, <laughs> A tight end named Bates, John Bates, I believe, uh, came in for Washington. And uh, I guess he would be the next guy up. And in the, this Washington offense, apparently, if you are the tight end, you are the tight end and you run all the routes and you get all the snaps. So I suppose based on that usage, uh, this Bates guy could could be a streamer if Logan Thomas can't come back from that hamstring. Uh, Denny, I played O.J. Howard in this game in yeah, DFS <laughs> in my best lineup. Oh, so, no. <laughs> yeah. So I am not above playing John oh. Bates. I'm looking forward to it. Talk to me about the Tampa Bay <laughs> passing game and why OJ Howard didn't win me more money. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, OJ Howard uh, didn't didn't do anything, did not catch a pass. Um, I believe he only saw one target here. Cameron Bright saw three targets, caught one, caught one for a six yard touchdown. Uh, funny thing about the Cameron Bray touchdown, it would have been probably over his head if it hadn't been tipped, but it was tipped and redirected right into his arms for a very lucky score. Uh, so, uh, you know, OJ o- Howard, I-, I think you mentioned this in your column this week uh, that OJ Howard had been targeted on 19% of his routes this year. That was uh, a-, a lot more than Cameron Brate's 11%. Um, and-, and so he looked, Howard looked like uh, the play here, but it was Bray who ended up with the touchdown. I think going forward, it's just going to be whoever lucks into a touchdown, honestly. Anything to take away? I mean, Evans and Godwin uh, obviously locked in. Uh, Tyler Johnson here had five targets, three receptions for 17 yards, not not being the Antonio Brown replacement, really. I, I don't yeah. even know if he's all that well-suited to that role. 
Um, Leonard Fournette led the team in targets with nine. He had eight for 45 as a receiver. Uh, he had 11 for 47 on the ground. I guess it is interesting in terms of the backfield usage mm-hmm. that we didn't see more Gio Bernard here. Yeah, we saw we saw no Ronald Jones. We saw one target for for Gio Bernard. Um, he had, I'm sorry, three targets. He had one catch for four yards. But yeah, I mean, Leonard Fournette like has that PPR floor in this offense where, um, you know, he he won't be scripted out. Like he won't be sensitive to game script, and that's really important. He had 11 carries for 47 yards. I believe seven of those carries or eight came in the first half, so he was barely used on the ground. Yeah in the second half, but you know, completely saves his day with eight, eight catches, eight catches for 45 yards. Um, you know, that makes him an RB two going forward mm-hmm. with, with touchdown upside because he is the, the only guy who's getting the ball at the goal line for Tampa. Yeah. And kind of a floor game for the entire offense. Uh, pretty impressive for him to be able to, to still have that type of production. Green Bay defeating Seattle 17 to zero in Russell Wilson's first shutout of his entire career. Yeah, uh, fourth worst passer rating of Russell Wilson's career. He said after the game that uh, his finger was definitely okay, 100%, everything's okay, but it didn't It didn't look that way to me. Um, you know, just watching the game, he was... Uh, he was inaccurate on a few sort of routine throws. Um, he, the throws to the boundary kind of floated on him. And, that, you know, that could have been the weather. It was windy. Uh, there were there were flurries and some other precipitation coming down in Green Bay, like typical November Green Bay weather. But, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't look 100% to me. Uh, only, yeah, like you said, 161 yards, two picks. Um, he nearly saved his day, not saved his day, but saved Tyler Lockett's day, I should say. With it, with a long pass uh, in the in the game's final final drive, Seattle. Um, but he looked so bad that I think fantasy managers need to kind of question whether they're going to start him going forward. Wow. Um, what is what is what's the takeaway then for DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett? Yeah, uh, you know Metcalf. Well, he was thrown out of the game for for punching a defender and. And then weirdly tried to come back into the game after he'd been thrown out. Um, but he did lead the team. He was tied for the team lead with eight targets, tied with Tyler Lockett and uh, Gerald Everett, strangely enough. Uh, he caught three for 26. He had, there were there was at least one play where Russell Wilson just completely missed a wide open Metcalf on what would have been a 15, 20 yard gain, maybe more, um, if he had, you know, had a long run after the catch. In the middle of the field, it, it, it was uh, it, it wasn't as bad as it looked for Metcalf, I don't think. Uh, but you know, it's that's cold comfort for folks who log into their fantasy teams and see that he scored, um, you know, what seven PPR points, something like that. Yeah, the big news on the other side of the game is going to be Aaron Jones, who left this game, I believe, with a knee injury. Do we have any news on that? He's going to un- undergo further testing uh, on Monday or early in the week. He was helped to the blue medical tent after the injury, quickly exited the tent, uh, was reportedly in tears, uh, went to go consult family members in the uh, in the stands near the Green Bay bench, um, and then was sort of slumped over on the on the bench after that. So just judging from that, 
that doesn't seem good. He has an MCL sprain. That's what they're calling it at the moment. Um, we all know that that can be, that can turn into something more serious and long-term with more testing. Um, AJ Dillon comes in and immediately scores two touchdowns after Jones exits. Uh, AJ Dillon also had the, the longest play for the Packers on the day, which was a 50 yard reception in the first half. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I'm being too bullish to say that AJ Dillon is a, is probably a top five fantasy running back if Aaron Jones misses significant time. Yeah, that, that seems reasonable. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if if Kylan Hill would get a little bit more involvement if they well, you know are game planning well, for Yeah, Hill's out. Uh, oh, Hill, you're right. Okay. Yeah, Ky- Kylan Hill's out, and that's that's something that I wanted to note in the blurbs is that Patrick Taylor, who they signed as an undrafted free agent, he saw two carries in this game, and he would be the next guy up, um, and perhaps sprinkled in along with Dylan. But the all the Dylan's high value touches are about to go through the roof, um, and his touchdown equity and upside is really tantalizing. If if Jones unfortunately misses time, yeah. What about uh, the receivers here for uh, Green Bay? Uh, Devontae Adams got eleven targets. You know we we expect him to be yeah. the, the target hog. He certainly was. Doesn't get in the end zone though. Goes seven for seventy eight, and pretty disappointing results from basically everyone else. Yeah, uh, Aaron Rodgers did not have a touchdown upon his return from the COVID list. Uh, his yardage ended up being you know, better than I thought watching the game. He 292 yards. Um, he was only sacked once, didn't see much pressure. But then again, the Seahawks don't really pressure the quarterback too much. Um, besides Adams, it was, it was basically no one. I mean, uh, Aaron Jones, before he left, he saw four. He had four catches on six targets. Uh, Marquez Valdez Scantling had one catch for 41 yards. Randall Cobb had three catches for 21. So it's really like Devontae Adams are bust in this passing game. Uh, once again, you know, here 11, 11 targets, seven catches. Uh, he came in, Adams came into the week uh, with the highest target share in the entire NFL. So I, it's, it's hard to like pinpoint a solid Green Bay receiving option outside of Adams. Uh, I didn't. I didn't ask you about the Seattle backfield. Any notes on that? Chris Carson was ruled out. Yeah, pretty quickly. I think he'll probably be ruled out again. So, thoughts on Collins here? Right. So Collins had ten carries for forty-one yards. Um, uh, seven or eight of those, I believe, eight came in the first half. He was uh, scripted out in the second half after the Packers got a ten nothing ten nothing lead, and it might as well have been a forty nothing lead. I mean, it was it felt insurmountable at 10 nothing and then and then um of course the final score was 17 nothing now Travis Homer notably took the passing down role here uh Homer who you know is a a pass catching specialist saw four targets caught three of those for 23 yards um and 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 Collins only had one catch on one target so uh you know I don't I don't know when you can confidently play <laughs> Travis Homer but I think the key the takeaway here is that uh it as long as he's healthy and he apparently Homer is, is, is recovered from this hand injury. He had, he's going to eat in to any, any kind of pass game action. Alex Collins would see. Okay. So not, not a ton of value here with Russ playing like this, plus uncertainty about Carson going forward. Yeah. It's it's tough. All right. Well, Denny Carter, thanks so much. Thank you. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? 
Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Get an edge in your fantasy league with player rankings, projections, tiers, and alerts for players on your team or who you're eyeing on the waiver wire by signing up for NBC Sports Edge Plus and do it at a discount. Use the code GOOD10 and get 10% off your annual subscription. The Colts defeated the Jaguars 23-17, and Jonathan Taylor now has a rushing touchdown in seven straight games, which is the longest streak in the NFL. Jack Miller, how did this one go down? Yeah, I mean, Taylor was the story. He had 21 carries, 116 yards, and a touchdown, but he also had eight targets. Uh, He was only able to turn that into 10 yards, but he did have six catches, and those eight targets on 34 Carson Wentz pass attempts is is almost a a 25% target share. So that's really good news for Taylor, and he has just been firing on all cylinders lately, albeit against the, uh, the Jags and Jets. Yeah, but that's kind of what you expect from a star running back, that, that, you know, when you get set up in these spots to crush the guy crushes and he continued doing that here goes 21 rushes 116 yards and a touchdown and then as you mentioned the eight targets six receptions just for 10 yards i mean that's definitely disappointing but we know he can break big plays so i don't know if there's too much to take from that what about the rest of the receiving game here yeah i mean michael Pittman continues to have what i think is one of the more underrated seasons um uh, you know a lot of year two guys are you know making getting big headlines and stuff but Pittman just continues to emerge as the Colts clear wide receiver one T.Y. Hilton returned and he stepped in immediately as their third receiver he had 26 routes on 36 dropbacks but he is still third behind Zach Pascal and Pittman who both ran 34 routes um so that's pretty much the story of the receiving core for the Colts what about on the other side? Uh, really nice play here from Jamal Agnew, although that was actually a rush. He had a 66-yard touchdown, I believe. Um, what what did you see from uh, the Jaguars on the ground? Yeah, so, I mean, Robinson has been banged up lately, and so he played 39 out of 66 snaps, so just over a 50% snap share, and I think maybe that could have been due to the injury because before he got hurt, we were seeing him really start to emerge as the workhorse and Carlos Hyde kind of being sent to the side. Um, whereas at the start of the year, it was more of an even timeshare. Um, Robinson did have 12 carries. They were in negative game script. Um, and then Carlos Hyde only had two carries, but Hyde did run a, a fair amount of routes. Um, Robinson still bested him there, but I think maybe as Robinson gets healthier, we start to go back to that that kind of monopoly that James Robinson has on the Jags rushing attack. 
What about on the receiving side? You know, I mentioned Agnew had the big play, but as a rusher, as a receiver, he actually did not have a catch. He had five targets, zero receptions. Um, I've continued to maintain that Dan Arnold is actually the wide receiver one here. He has been basically since he arrived and got comfortable. Seven targets here, five receptions for 67 yards. Um, I thought he got a rush, but I guess not. Uh, so it was a short pass. But Dan Arnold's kind of leading the way. Marvin Jones had uh, two receptions for 35 yards on six targets. LaVisca Chenault got eight targets, actually led the team, but finishes with just three for 15. Uh Anything to take away from here? Yeah, Arnold is is one of only a few every down tight ends in the league, and he continues to be one of the better tight end options in the league, even if he doesn't have that name value. Um, but besides him and then besides James Robinson, too, who had uh, five targets and turned that into four catches for 27 yards, it really was kind of a struggle for the Jags passing attack. Trevor Lawrence, 16 for 35, only averaged 4.6 yards per attempt. Um Agnew, you said he had zero catches, but he did have five targets. And then neither Marvin Jones nor LaVisca Chenault were able to catch even 50% of their targets. So besides Arnold and then James Robinson, um, mostly just a struggle efficiency-wise. But, I mean, the volume was there for all three receivers to a certain extent. Yeah, and I I think Dan Arnold's prices stayed pretty cheap in DFS, and he came very cheaply in drafts and everything. So – He's actually like a nice kind of bright spot for this offense, but it it, it does it, it almost feels like it's down to him. Or you know, James Robinson certainly playable, but feels almost like like touchdown or bust at times, even with James Robinson. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, I mean, with Arnold, the bar is so low to be a a fantasy viable tight end. And I, it, I mean, to be fair to Arnold, it's not like he's just meeting the bar. Like he has legitimately been a, a very good option this season. Um, but I tend to agree with you that he's really the only guy that you can get excited about starting, which sounds yeah. kind of crazy, but I think it's the case. Yeah, you can certainly start James Robinson. You probably are, but you're not as excited about it as for some reason we are to start Dan Arnold. <laughs> what, a, yeah. what a year. <laughs> but, but Jack Miller, thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. The Bills defeated the Jets 45-17 to in the Bills' third 40-plus game this season and a really nice bounce back after their confusing loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars last week. Patrick Darty, how did the Bills rebound here? Well, we learned that their season wasn't over. Uh, they can still score points and that, you know, it was maybe a little hasty last week, you know, when we declared them out of the playoffs. Uh, I don't – neither one of us – I don't think anyone did that. Even I did have some people ask me if there were any good teams in the NFL, and I responded to Bills. <laughs> The, the bills and like the, the bills are still pretty good yeah yeah and, uh, it was it, you know probably the most dismal loss of the entire year by any good team last week uh, utterly confusing and shocking but you know they did not only did they get back on track they did what like we really wanted them to do was they got back on track deep uh stefan Diggs had eight catches for 162 yards and a touchdown maybe had two grabs for over 40 yards he had a 57 yarder that might have been an 80-yard touchdown, but he just didn't quite have his feet underneath him when he caught it. He was kind of stumbling when he caught it, and might have been a house call if he hadn't done that. But he was getting loose deep. Gabriel Davis got loose deep, actually almost doubled his season total for receiving yards. At the end of the day, I think, I think 133 yards. He had 103. He had like a 50-yard catch, and that might have been because – so Cole Beasley 
Uh, so I'm like, I'm, I'm like watching the game. I'm like, wow, you know, the Bills are just really trying to reestablish their deep passing attack. Like, really good news. And you know, the same game where they're reestablishing the run. By the way, Matt Breida uh, came out of nowhere and scored two touchdowns. But I was like, wow, they're really getting digs going. They're really getting Gabriel Davis going. But then after the game, some of the initial pro football focus snap counts had Cole Beasley under 10 snaps. I don't know if that's going to hold, but he was removed from the injury report on Friday with his ribs. But you'd have to assume, you know, that's obviously a health thing. And they're not just like totally changing up the offense on the fly. And so I guess maybe Beasley just wasn't really ready to go. And I'm sure they did want to get the deep passing attack going again. I guess, you know, a Jets defense that, uh, that, that we talked about that in some of our preview shows. The beauty of the Jets defense is you can like get whatever you want going. And the Bills wanted to get their run game on track and they wanted to get their deep passing on track. And they accomplished both on Sunday. Yeah, I was going to ask because Gabriel Davis had three targets, went three for 105 yards. Um, you, you know, mentioned the, the Dakes game. He had 162 yards and a touchdown, eight receptions on 13 targets. But in addition to Davis getting his three targets, you also had Isaiah McKenzie get three targets. He went, he went uh, one for 12. So that was going to be the question is, you know, these guys who aren't usually getting all that much involvement kind of came at the expense of both Sanders and Beasley with Sanders getting two targets going for two for 27 and then Beasley two targets going two for 15. But it sounds like from what you're saying that maybe the bigger concern going forward is Beasley, even if that's maybe just health related. Yeah. I mean, that's just a guess though. I mean, he wasn't announced with an injury. And like I said, he was actually removed from the injury report on Friday. Um, so, yeah, but it doesn't seem like they would do such a dramatic, you know, like shift in their offense that Cole Beasley's playing 10 snaps, you know, it just, yeah, it was not the underneath guys day. You know, Manuel Sanders, but he has six receptions, for 92 scoreless yards over his past three games. So maybe he's been phased out as strong, but he's been de-emphasized now for several weeks. And, you know, the Bills, they, they take a very fancy football-like approach to real life. They know, you know, you don't really need to run. You need to get your stars going. And they, they clearly were prioritizing getting Stefan Diggs going. And, I mean, I, I, Emmanuel Sanders is more worrisome than Cole Beasley. Cole Beasley, I mean, the health is worrisome, but – it's very hard to believe, isn't it, that Cole Beasley is just like fall out of this attack. But it's a situation where we definitely need more information. We need like official snap counts. We need the Bills press conference on Monday. Maybe just try to find out what was going on with Cole Beasley because, yeah, it was very dramatic. What about Dawson Knox here? Only had one target, went one for 17, but I know he could have had, maybe if there wasn't a penalty, uh, another touchdown. Well, he, he, well he, it would have been very triggering because he uh, – if he had caught, he had an end zone target, but he dropped it. And then even if he had caught it, it wouldn't have counted because the Bills committed a penalty. Hmm. So it was qu- quite a jokerifying type target. But, you know, Dawson Knox is kind of surprising. It's like, uh, you know, the Bills, the emphasis was get the deep game going. I was like the clear emphasis. But also, you know, Dawson Knox is like a part of that, and especially by tight end standards. He's made a lot of deep plays down the seam. So it was a little confusing. You know, maybe he just didn't have his legs underneath him. You know, first time four or five weeks he's playing. But you know, one target in a game where they score 45 points, they were still throwing late. Like Josh Allen was still throwing some deep balls to Steph Diggs, like real late in the game. They were already up like 38 I to love 10. It. Yeah, they were going full Belichick. Um, so Knox, I mean, again, I'll just project and guess. Maybe it's just conditioning. Because it wasn't Tommy Sweeney. Um but, yeah, I mean, Knox, I guess it would be a very bad development for Dawson Knox if Gabriel Davis was reemerging 
as a downfield guy and a guy who could kind of compete for some of those splash targets because Dawson Knox doesn't need any more competition. But Gabe Davis, it hasn't made any sense all year why this guy if he forces his way onto the field as a day three rookie and he's just totally de-emphasized as a sophomore. It's very strange. It is strange, and he has something he does really well, which is win deep. Um, he's not like the fastest guy in the world, but um, usually when you know the guy has like a skill that that immediately translates, it's even odder if you know. Yeah, that's that's what I always say. When a guy lives up, especially a day three rookie, when he leaves lives up to his pre-draft billing immediately, it's very like the the Manuel Sanders signing was trouble from the jump. But I'm like, surely they won't totally de-emphasize him. And then yeah, it's halfway through the season, and he had 130 yards coming into the day. You mentioned, you know, maybe not a dramatic shift here on the receiving side. There maybe was a dramatic shift on the running back side because, you know, in a game where the Bills win 45 to 17, and you see how oh, Matt Breida got a ton of run, but Devin Singletary led in targets and Zach Moss, or in rushes with seven, tying Zach Moss with seven. So Breida's stuff must have been garbage time. From what I saw, it almost seemed like the reverse, where it was Breida early and the guys we expected to get work were coming in later. Yeah, it was definitely a dramatic turn, but I guess you could say there's one constant constancies that I don't know, is that a word? There's one constant in the Bills' backfield. It is dramatic turns, and yeah, but this was really dramatic. Matt Breida had not even capped since week two, had not played since week two, and the opening drive he scores a 15-yard touchdown on a wheel route, and just totally out of nowhere. Later, he scores a rushing touchdown. He did have a fumble that the Bills recovered. So it wasn't all roses for Matt Breida, but he, 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 I think it was six touches and he definitely made the most of them. Had, had a few like splash plays. It was just given another look from this Bills backfield where you know, Zach Moss isn't going to give you much splash. Devin Singletary can, but you know, isn't much of a, a grinder, I guess. I don't know. Maybe Matt Breida is like the happy medium between those two. And I, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish in their backfield because. I don't really know how like introducing a third back is going to make things any better, but they every week they've got like a different vision for this backfield, and this time for the first time in eight weeks it involved Matt Breida. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, on the other side, you know, the Jets very clearly want Zach Wilson to take all the time he needs with his knee injury, <laughs> yes. and uh, I guess coming out of this game, like how how much quicker would they like him to heal? <laughs> Uh, I, compared to last week with Mike White throwing four INTs here. I think I, I hate to be too cynical, but I would have to assume that Zach Wilson's knee is magically feeling a hundred percent this week. And <laughs> Mike White, uh, you know, it was tough because he had the great game two weeks ago. He got shortchanged in what might have been a good matchup in last week against the Colts defense that's allowing way more big plays than usual this year, even though their MO is stamping out big plays. But uh, this was by far the toughest test Mike White had faced, and the Bills defense has been one of the very best pass defenses in and he failed miserably. He kind of like ran the gamut on his picks. He had a flutterer after he got hit, you know, a ball that was just like dying in the air. He had a nowhere – like I, I, this is what I wrote in the blurb, a nowheresville, a deep ball into double coverage. Uh, the, the third INT, the, just the route was easily jumped. The fourth INT, staring him down, the route was even more easily jumped. Just – not he he was put now in a really bad position, you know, trying to match blows with one of the best offenses in the NFL. You know the Jets off defense not stopping the Bills offense at all, and he's put in a really bad position against a really aggressive like big play defense. And but it was like a hopeless mission and one that he failed uh, very vividly. 
one thing we weren't sure about with uh, Mike White was, you know, how he was going to mesh with Corey Davis because they hadn't really been playing together uh, with Davis out. Davis comes back here. He had seven targets, goes five for 93. Seems like from the box score that he was the, the number one option still like he'd been with Zach Wilson. But Elijah Moore not far behind with six targets, uh, three receptions and 44 yards, and he's the one who gets in the end zone. He was, but yeah, it was it was kind of Corey Davis from the jump, which I was a little surprised by because it seemed like Mike White's game was kind of like the classic, like spread the ball around, take the short targets, like don't make a ton of risky throws, just like rack up completions. And, you know, that's not really Corey Davis, but yeah, he was treating Corey Davis like his number one wide receiver. And Corey Davis, unfortunately, made a mistake that kind of ended, ended any shot the Jets had at competing. It was 17 to three late in the second quarter. They were driving down. They were already in field goal range. And he was fighting for extra yardage and just committed a very, very unfortunate fumble. And it could have maybe been 17 to 10, would have definitely been 17 to 6. Who knows? Maybe the mojo in the second half would be different. But yeah, Corey Davis, he's the target on at least one of the picks. He he was he was fine. He had a lot of Tredavious White, but I was surprised to see Mike White. I, I thought you know Corey Davis would get frozen out and it'd be our underneath guys and Elijah Moore and Jameson Crowder, but no, that was not the plan. It was right back to Corey Davis. What about uh, Michael Carter? I mean, six targets here, four for 43, gets in the end zone on 16 rushes. You know, not the like the biggest day, but at the same time, given what we got out of the Jets offense, pretty encouraging, I would say. It's pretty encouraging, especially because Tevin Coleman came back. And, you know, we, we talked like, you know, you don't really need to involve Tevin Coleman in this offense, do you, Jets? And then he got six touches. And it wasn't all garbage time. He was mixing in throughout the game. He's mixing in, I would say, as a pure like breather back, like a, a literal, like a true change of pace back. But those are six touches, you know, that you can't get back once they go to Tevin Coleman. And, but it was encouraging. So it was three man ordeal, but Michael Carter, you know, in a game that wasn't competitive, really got 20 touches still. Ty Johnson got seven, Tevin Coleman got six. So even introducing like another variable into this backfield, it was really good to see Michael Carter kind of like maintaining his supremacy. I mean, Ty Johnson still led in targets, though. You know, if the Jets, you know, God forbid, actually start to play in some close games, like maybe they could try to be in establishing with Tevin Coleman. But God like, forbid they yeah, don't get. We don't want out. that. We don't want that at all. <laughs> and uh, Mike Carter has the huge advantage on the ground over Ty Johnson, and Ty Johnson's advantage on third downs is not very big. Mike Carter still plays a lot of third downs. So, I, all in all, like if the other running back comes back and you still get twenty touches, really good day. Let's get to the second game in which the Vikings defeated the Chargers 27-20. to Justin Herbert now in his last four games has three under 225 passing yards. And this game, you know, it is a competitive game, like not super high scoring, not super low scoring, but yet somehow felt like kind of a big bust fantasy-wise at least. It was. And Justin Herbert, not yet, three or four games. He's been under 60% completion percentage all three of those games. Under six and a half yards per attempt in those three games. He only has two more touchdowns than interceptions over the past four weeks. He hasn't had a single three touchdown day through the air since week five, I believe. And all three of these games have been against really well coached, like the kind of like the best defensive coaches in the league. Like, say what you will about Mike Zimmer on offense, you know, definitely one of the best defensive coaches in the league. Bill Belichick two weeks ago, you know, the Ravens struggling from a personnel perspective. But still, you know, always going to be like one of the best schemes, like most creative, most aggressive defenses 
and his horrible days against those three defenses with the one Island game mixed in with the Eagles, you know, who allow like kind of anyone who wants to, to complete 80% of their passes. And he did that against the Eagles last week. Um, and he's just been, he's just been a, seemed like a young player getting kind of flummoxed by the different looks, like the more experienced coordinators are throwing at him. Just seemed like maybe not understand. I don't know. It's weird. He's been looking really good still, but kind of like inaccurate throws and in big moments, which maybe means he's not like understanding the coverage. Just not, I, I'm not a film watcher. Um, but it's, it's, this is also coincided with Mike Williams. It had that huge game. Herbert and Mike Williams both did against the Browns in week five. That was the game though, that afterwards Mike Williams showed up in the injury report with his knee. He hasn't been the same since, and Herbert has not been the same since. And that could be like a really poor F attempt at an excuse because Mike Williams was not on the injury report this week, but things have not been the same since Mike Williams' knee popped up and he really, really needs Mike Williams to get going. He has 10 catches over his past four games. And without that, like that big play element opposite Keenan Allen, who's still really compiling in the middle of the field, it's just kind of a, a one-dimensional passing attack right now. Especially, you know, especially with no running game to like release uh, like the pressure valve at all. They really, really need that downfield element again. Yeah, Keenan Allen now has 11 targets or more in three straight games, had 11 here, went eight for 98. So pretty nice game for Keenan. But, yeah, Mike Williams goes four for 33 on just uh, six targets. Um, and, you know, it's you know maybe the six targets isn't the problem, but, you know, you you want to connect, see him connect for a few big plays like he was earlier in the, in the year. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be a long game. Sorry to interrupt you. One of his misconnections was uh, almost certainly a drop touchdown. It was a, mm. a drop. He had a head of steam for the end zone, and he dropped it. And that could have changed Justin Herbert's day, would have changed Mike Williams' day, maybe changed the whole Mike Williams fantasy trajectory, but uh, he dropped it. In terms of, you mentioned, you know, they don't really have much of a run game. Um, Austin Eckler went 11 for 44 on the ground. Um, he got six targets going three for 15 and a touchdown. Uh, like the short passing game to Eckler plus the rushing game. How has that part of the offense looked? It's been kind of stuck in neutral the past two weeks. I mean, he only has six catches, I think, for like 30 yards over the past two weeks. And the Vikings are a kind of team where you, you need to be able to run against the Vikings because they have a, you know, they've got a lot of injuries on defense, but all year they've been limiting like enemy passing production allowed very, very few passing touchdowns been very, very giving on the ground. And they just couldn't take advantage of that. They just can't. I mean, I, I hate to be like established. This is the second week in a row. I feel like I've accidentally like vouched for establishing the run. Yeah. Pat Darty <laughs> said the chargers need to run the ball. Well, they slow down. You're playing too fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't go for it. pressure on your defense. Um, but yeah, they, they needed, uh, they could have made a lot of these drives easier against the Vikings, but they couldn't get the easy yardage. The Vikings give everyone on the ground and they're still, it's like blindly making it up behind Austin Eckler's Larry Roundtree reemerged for some reason, five carries for 10 yards. He did go over the top of the pile like Walter Payton on his one-yard touchdown. And that was the only good thing any non-Eckler back did all day. And, yeah, it's just kind of – certain certain teams you need to be able to take the layups they're going to give you on the ground, especially if your deep passing attack is kind of discombobulated like the Chargers is. And it was definitely a missed opportunity they couldn't run on the Vikings. On the Vikings side, a team who does very much enjoy establishing Oh, do it. they ever. Uh, <laughs> and they've got the spot to do so here. I mean, the Chargers are the biggest run funnel in the league, and it's uh, because they want you to run on them, and uh, they're not very good at stopping the run. So Dalvin Cook goes 94 yards and a touchdown on 24 rushes, which is both a good game and 
feels a little disappointing given for, you know, given just like how nice of a spot this really was. He did add three receptions for 24 yards on five targets. Uh, what did you see from the Vikings on the ground? Yeah, it was definitely disappointing. The Chargers allowed 160 rushing yards per game. It was a game where the Vikings had a lead almost all the entire afternoon, had a two-score lead uh, for a little while. And I don't really know. He looked spry. He didn't look like he was injured or anything. He wasn't didn't pick up any new injuries, wasn't on the injury report going in. And somehow the Chargers just kind of bobbled him. He had a few – his efficiency was brought down by like a, a bunch of like – he. Three goal line carries in a row. He's failed to score in the third quarter. Um, and they went for it on fourth down and uh, thankfully threw a touchdown to Tyler Conklin. But he he got stood up in a couple of really obvious running situations that brought down the overall efficiency marks. He did, thankfully, the next drive after getting stopped, get his goal line plunge finally. But, yeah, I mean, I thought this would be like 100 yards in a sleep for Dalvin Cook. And I, I can't – as again as a non-expert film watcher, I can't really tell you why that happened. But it was definitely one of the best uh, performances by the Chargers run defense all season. Interesting. Uh, through the air, I don't think Kirk Cousins is a big fantasy guy because you're supposed to throw the touchdowns to the guy who's going to put up all the yards. Justin Jefferson yeah. here, 9 for 143. No touchdowns on 11 targets. Tyler Conklin, two touchdowns. That's nice. Goes 3 for 11 otherwise. So, yes. you know, combine those, Kirk. Yes, and it was yeah Tyler Conklin's least impressive compiling effort of the entire season. He entered today with only one touchdown, and somehow he gets two. T- so Justin Jefferson was getting singled up constantly and just winning singled up constantly, and was just chewing up yards. He had like a number of twenty yard completions. He had a few others right under twenty yards. Like he had like five or six of his catches that were like right at twenty yards or beyond twenty yards, and he was just winning down the side. It was like a to use like the most annoying football game. It was like a true alpha performance, just winning over and over again on the sideline and single coverage. And there's kind of nothing the Chargers could do. You know, pretty good Chargers secondary. They're missing a few players, but like just beating tight space and still winning. Um, Why they didn't give him the opportunity to do that against two uh, much softer pass defenses over the past two weeks and the Ravens and Cowboys, not really sure, but they finally did it. And yeah, shockingly, Given the volume, he immediately responded with a monster game. Anything to note on Adam Thielen? Yeah, he got he got like literally ejected out of bounds, like thrown out of bounds, and on a red zone catch in the second half. It looked like maybe he had tweaked his ankle, but then he didn't even miss a play and seemed totally fine. So good game for him. Actually, he had like five catches, sixty yards. Pretty kind of stat line where you would normally expect that to be accompanied by a touchdown for Adam Thielen, but it, it was Conklin season. He got both. Uh, he got the true end zone targets today, and just Adam Thielen got frozen out. You hate to see it. All right, Pat Darty, thanks so much. My pleasure as always, other Pat. The Cowboys defeated the Falcons forty-three to three in a huge first half performance, in which they had thirty-six points, the most since Week Six in nineteen eighty, and the biggest halftime lead of thirty-three points since nineteen seventy-one. Nick Mencio, the Cowboys got up quickly here and the Falcons never really had a chance yeah I mean the Falcons started off pretty well they drove it down in the red zone but settled for that young way coup field goal and then it was just nothing after that man it looked like Pitts and Cordero Cordero Patterson were gonna have big games but I mean they just never got anything going after that yeah so you know they're in passing game script the entire rest of the game here 
And, you know, as you mentioned, Pitts and Patterson were pretty disappointing. Patterson had four rushes for 25 yards. Uh, He had just two targets, though, went one for 14. And then Kyle Pitts had seven targets, four receptions, and 60 yards. So maybe a little less disappointing for Pitts, but still, you'd think like even just passing volume would get them there. But Matt Ryan had 21 attempts, and it it got so out of control that they actually pulled him in and put in Josh Rosen, who had six attempts. So it it was like obviously a disappointing performance for the Falcons, but disappointing that there wasn't even kind of garbage time production here. Right, yeah, they get, they all got pulled after three quarters, so we didn't get that last 15 minutes of garbage time for those guys. Um, we just seeing a lot of Wayne Gallman at the end there, um, a lot of just uh, bottom-of-the-barrel type guys for the Falcons at the end. So, like you said, no garbage time for them. Um, the only notable takeaway I take from the Falcons was Wayne Gallman having those 15 carries. I mean, it was a little bit garbage time induced, but he was in there with Matt Ryan's group, and I think they were – kind of shying away from Mike Davis. So I'm going to be interested to see how this goes forward. I mean, I think Wayne Gallman could be a pickup here for like running back desperate fantasy manager. So I think Mike Davis is definitely a drop here. I mean, not that he was really, he was already boarding on that coming in this one, but I think this kind of just solidifies it. Yeah. That's really interesting. If Gallman was still playing with Ryan. Uh, So that's one to keep an eye on. Uh, Be curious what, uh, what Daigle says about that on the, the waiver wire show tomorrow. Um, on the Cowboys side, Ezekiel Elliott got in the end zone twice, uh, going 14 for 41, but they also had a lot of success through the air as well. Yeah, I mean, Zeke vultured a couple touchdowns. He didn't really do anything with his yards or carries like that. I think he averaged like less than three yards a carry with his totes. He looked kind of stiff to me. He had that knee bruise last week, so I wonder if that was bothering him a little bit, but um, punched in those one-yard and two-yard touchdowns after Michael Gallup got him down to the two-yard line on one. And then I can't remember who did it, who got him down to the one before that. But, I mean, Zeke pounds in his red zone and goal line looks this year. He's, I think those were his first touchdown since week five, if I was reading that right. Um, so it was good to see him score. I think he's averaged like 52 rushing yards over the last four weeks. So good to see him score. Um, C.D. Lamb, two touchdowns um, from 13 and nine yards out, I believe. Um he has five touchdowns over the last five games, uh, a couple two-touchdown two games mixed in with those. Um, definitely want to see Amari Cooper get going here soon. Um, I think the biggest loser on this Cowboys side was Dalton Schultz, only um, one catch on two targets. I wonder if Michael Gallup's return is going to really affect him in the tight end um, ranks going forward. So I'm going to be keeping an eye on that one going forward. Yeah, and I guess it's, it, the box score is misleading here too because you know they were up so big. You're seeing like Sean McKeon. You're seeing – um, Noah Brown, you know, you're, you're seeing lots of kind of guys who probably right. weren't getting that much. Um, but yeah, the, the usage from Ari Cooper, I think a little concerning four for 51 on four targets, CD lamb, six for 94, two touchdowns on seven targets. And then Michael Gallup, three for 42 on five targets. Uh, yeah, it definitely feels like it's going to be a bit of a whack-a-mole situation with the wide receivers plus Schultz. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird how Cooper's huge game in the last month came with Cooper Rush and his three bad games in that span were all with Dak. So, I don't know. I mean, next week's should be huge. I mean, they're going to Kansas City for a shootout with the Chiefs, so I think everyone's just going to pop off on that one. But it'll be a fun fantasy game. But I don't know. We need to see Cooper get going here more. Let's get to the second game. Another one-sided affair here. The Panthers defeating the Cardinals 34-10. to 
even though the Panthers really got things going here, DJ Moore had a tough game. He's now under 75 yards six weeks in a row. Yeah, his biggest play was pretty much a long throw from Cam Newton down the left side where he drew a long defensive pass interference call. I mean, he's just not getting like, – Philip Walker or P.J. Walker, I don't know what he goes by these days, but he, uh, I mean, wasn't doing anything downfield. There was no plays made in the passing game. It was all dump-offs to Christian McCaffrey, caught all 10 of his targets, 23 touches in this one um, after 19 touches last week. Not, didn't really even play in the fourth quarter, so, I mean, he's – Lock and load RB one every week. This every every week going forward. I mean, he's the overall RB one going forward. So, um, I don't know. The Panthers beat writers though were saying he was kind of uh, looking at his hamstring on the sideline. So that's going to be something to watch this uh, this week coming forward. I mean, the Panthers didn't announce anything during the game that he was injured or anything like that. So I'm kind of crossing my fingers with that one. But not a lot of takeaways from the Panthers side. I think they're just going to be super run dominant going forward with Cam Newton under center. Um, I mean, these target counts aren't going to be very high the rest of the way, I don't think. Sorry, so McCaffrey, they were saying he was looking at his hamstring? Or, yep, or more? yep. They were, okay. there was, no, McCaffrey, they were talking about um, how his right hamstring was kind of getting looked at on the sideline late in the game. He was in the medical blue medical tent for like a split second earlier before they said that. So I don't know. Just going to be something to keep an eye on uh, this week. Okay, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the Cardinals' side, you know, they don't have Kyler Murray here. Uh, Colt McCoy played well against 49ers. This is a much more difficult defense, but, you know, really did not have anything going here, I guess, outside of Christian Kirk, uh, who had seven for 58 on eight targets. And then James Conner at least does score a touchdown, goes uh, 39 yards on 10 rushes, and also adds three receptions for 25 yards on four targets. Yeah, not a whole lot to take away from this side. I mean, you're missing Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins, like you said. Um, just kind of just burying the tape on this game. Nothing to take away from it. Um, James Conner salvaged his fantasy day at least late with that 11-yard touchdown run. It's like it's like when everyone jumps on the Conner bandwagon is when he kind of falls <laughs> yeah, exactly. off today. But definitely, definitely saved himself with that late touchdown. But definitely didn't even come close to expectations we were we had going into this one. But um, yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot to take away from this side other than James Conner scoring that touchdown. What What about the Eno Benjamin usage? He had six rushes for 22 yards, but you know this game was pretty out of hand. Was that garbage time usage? No, I think that was kind of mixed in. I think like James Conner's handling his normal role and then taking on those targets that Chase Edmonds had, and then you know Benjamin's kind of mixed in for like a reduced James Conner role from before, mm-hmm. not seeing targets in the past game, just handling handful of carries. So, I mean, he could have some value in the next couple of weeks with Edmonds uh, out and on IR for at least two more games, but we're just going to have to see closer game script for him. I don't know. I just don't know how it's going to play out. Just It's tough to take a tough to get a read off this game when they're playing from behind so much in this one. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, thanks so much, Nick. I'll talk. We'll talk soon. Absolutely, man. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The NFL season is in full swing, and the NBC Sports Predictor app, powered by PointsBet, has you covered with Sunday Night 7. Predict what will happen between the Steelers and Chargers on Sunday night, for a chance to win up to $100,000. It's free and easy to play. Download today from your app store or visit NBCSports.com slash predictor. And starting after Thanksgiving, $1 million will be up for grabs every Sunday night. The Titans defeated the Saints 23-21 to in a game where Mark Ingram passed Deuce McAllister for the most rushing yards in Saints history. But John Daigle, the Titans got the win here. And I think... Saints fans will angrily, frustratingly point to one specific call, and that is when the Titans were tied 6-6 inside the five-yard line, and Ryan Tannehill threw an interception, but it was actually called back for an egregious, I would say barely there, but it actually wasn't barely there. It just wasn't there, roughing the passer penalty that then took the Titans ball into the one yard line on the goal line and Tannehill snuck it in to make it 13 to six. They eventually jumped out to a 26 lead. Trevor Simeon played really well actually and bringing them back so much so that they scored with 116 remaining and it came down to a two point conversion. It came down to that two point conversion for the saints because their interim kicker, Brian Johnson missed two extra points in this one. Mm. And then an end zone throw to Mark Ingram went wide. It's Trevor Simeon. You can only expect him to do so much. And the saints ultimately lost, but still hung around in there covered for a game and a point spread that moved far too much with Kamara, not in the lineup. And you saw that Mark Ingram was a bell cow and taking essentially every single touch, DeAndre Washington. Is that is that the right DeAndre? Uh, I believe it's Dwayne Washington. Dwayne Washington, thank you. There are a lot of DeAndres and Dwaynes. Dwayne Washington with two touches. As we talked about on the preview show, he pops up every week 17 to get a handful of carries, then goes away again for the rest of the year. He popped up here as an interim option, but it was all Mark Ingram, and that's basically what happened in this one. Yeah, Mark Ingram, 14 rushes, 47 yards, and a touchdown, and then seven targets, four receptions, and 61 yards. I mean, it's not, I, I imagine, quite as as beautiful football as when Alvin Kamara is doing it, but there's a lot of fantasy points here. He was not explosive, but it was as we expected. With only Alex Arma essentially behind him, there was just nowhere else to turn. And so he was, like many running backs on Sunday, they were treated like bell cows, as spot starters, that's exactly what Ingram was. And I just don't want anyone to lose sight that 
Recall he was already uh, a RB2, essentially, low end, with Kamara in the lineup, and that doesn't change. He's an RB2-3 for the rest of the season, who has averaged 11 touches in his two games prior to this one with Kamara in the lineup. So we are still looking at Ingram as a good option for the rest of the season to fill in just in case, and now we know... Even if he's not explosive, if Kamara is still injured or is out for whatever reason over the course of the season, uh, Ingram is still a touch-based low-end RB1 because they'll just give him everything if Kamara's out. Any notes on the Saints receiving game here? I mean, it's it's so difficult to know who's going to get work every week. Uh, Traquan Smith got in the end zone, as did Marcus Callaway, who are kind of the top two options here, but it, definitely hard to trust these guys. Marcus Callaway and Traquan Smith are just analogies for one another. They're the same player. Um, I don't think I've ever seen them on the field at the same time before, so not shocking these swap jerseys. Same thing for Deontay Harris, who's actually been their best deep receiver all year long. You just wouldn't know it because he runs significantly fewer routes than them, but he produces every single time he's on the field. Having said that, they're all wide receiver fives. Uh, They just cannibalize one another in a low-volume offense that really isn't that attractive despite how well Simeon is playing. Also of note, Taysom Hill, only two throws. They still continue sticking with Simeon no matter what in this game, which was quite surprising. So we'll see if that changes over the course of the week. Adam Troutman also popped up. Yet again, and this is back-to-back games, Juwan Johnson, not healthy scratch in this one like he was last week. But as, And we'll see how the routes shake out with that data on Monday morning. But overall, I think Troutman is still teasing as a sneaky tight end premium option down the stretch. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of tight end or of, uh, of wide receiver fives here, A.J. Brown won for 16. And yet somehow uh, Marcus Johnson – ends up leading the team in yards with 100, leading the team with five receptions, leading the team with six targets. What happens that, you know, A.J. Brown was so uninvolved in a game the Titans won? Permanent double teams. And in the rare times he was not double teamed, he had Marshawn Lattimore draping him. And at times when he was double teamed, he still had Marshawn Lattimore draping him, plus a safety over the top. It was basically the Saints' goal in life to make sure A.J. Brown was not involved in this one. Instead, it was Marcus Johnson, who we saw was the de facto replacement of Julio Jones. Was in the past as well, except it could have shaken out differently with Josh Reynolds now waved and out of the picture. But that's what it was. Chester Rogers in the slot, Marcus Johnson as the guy we should look to, and he'll be in the waiver column as Julio Jones' replacement, especially since the Titans have a significantly easier schedule coming up most recently against the Texans in week 11. Interesting. And then with the backfield, you know, I think you and I were in agreement here that Adrian Peterson, we thought would get more work, but Deontay Foreman got 11 rushes, led the backfield, only went for 30 yards, 2.7 yards per carry. Didn't exactly run away with it, but still. And then Adrian Peterson, eight for 21, Jeremy McNichols, four for seven. But Foreman also, interestingly, did get two targets, uh, two for 48 through the air. McNichols, three targets, one for one. And I don't I don't see a target for Peterson. So Foreman actually looking like the most interesting guy here just based off the box score. Interesting is relative. It's the tallest short person in the room. Um, if you're 4'11 in a room with five other people and you're the tallest one, you're still short. So I don't want to put too much stock into the guy in a three-headed backfield who's getting between the 20s touches Like you mentioned on the previous show on Wednesday, yes, he should be picked up, especially prior to this game, for cheap. 
just because he has looked like the best option. But a majority of Adrian Peterson's snaps, I should note, also came inside the 10-yard line. So it's mm-hmm. almost like Deontay Foreman is a poor man's Chase Edmonds whenever he's in there. Peterson then gets stuck in there as James Conner, and Jeremy McNichols is still a third-down option. The way it worked out this week, I think, is the way it, it will be for the rest of the year. And that Jeremy Nichols, as we expected, simply third and fourth down option. That's it with an extremely low floor. Uh, you need the Titans to get behind really to involve him heavily. And then Adrian Peterson is your goal line bruiser and Deontay Foreman sprinkling in more. If he gets more touches, that's okay. But overall, it just seems like a situation where they will cannibalize one another, unfortunately. Is there like, does Foreman look significantly better than Peterson? Yes. And how does, does Peterson look washed up? Okay. Yes. Uh, Peterson's 10-year-old son said it best. Dad, you look like you're running too upright. Yes, you are correct, <laughs> little Peterson. He looks like he's literally – and he's always been an upright runner. That's fine. He just lacks the le- like the forward movement and the downhill speed now. Uh, Foreman yeah. – and, and by the way, Foreman, like, he's just a guy who's gone around the league as well. Not an explosive option, but when you're looking at – when you're watching them, he probably looks significantly better on film because he comes in after Adrian Peterson and just looks so <laughs> much more explosive. So that's what it is right now. Foreman also – you know, you got to go back a long ways, but remember, like Foreman also won the Doak Walker Award for the best running back in the nation over Dalvin Cook at one point. Oh, he was and a really Cook. good prospect, but I think he had an yeah. Achilles tear and, and hasn't really done. And much again, he's then. he's been on a couple practice squads. He was stuffed on the Titans practice squad. And they had no interest in him, so I, I don't expect anything significant to happen. But should he be rostered? Yes, because you just don't know. Maybe the Titans reach a point, even in using Peterson on the goal line, where they just say, "Screw it!" Like we'll move forward with Foreman. Just like say this has not worked out with Peterson and wave him eventually down the stretch. But right now, yeah, it's just tough to, to weigh either heavily, especially since Peterson is basically uh, Malcolm Brown, like touchdown or bust. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a good comp. I think the the Miami backfield with Brown was healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's move on to the Eagles and the Broncos where the Eagles won 30 to 13. This is a game here where the Eagles stayed very run heavy. They had 40 rushing attempts last week, or excuse me, 39 rushing attempts last week versus the Chargers, 40 here. Uh, They also had uh, 40 plus the week prior. So they've really shifted to the run here, and they kept that same approach against the Broncos. And this one, another one that I would argue came down to one play, not as much of a blowout as the score shows because – he what the Broncos were and had no choice but to go for it in the second half on fourth and short at the Eagles 30 yard line. They needed a touchdown. Uh, Melvin Gordon runs the ball up the middle, gets the first down on fourth and one, but then fumbles. And that allowed Darius Slay to scoop it up and basically become a running back, look up field, show some vision, cut back between blockers and run up field for an 83 yard touchdown to put the Eagles up 27, 13. They tacked on a field goal in the second half to, finalize it at 30-13. But overall, it was all production that happened in the first half. Jalen Hurts was 15-20 for 176 yards and two touchdowns, both to Devonta Smith in the first half. And it could have been even better because one of his passes, a 34-yard bomb to Kez Watkins, was just flat dropped. Watkins was open. It was a good throw. Watkins dropped it. So it could have been an even better day for Jalen Hurts, who in three games now, despite averaging just 18 pass attempts, and 10.3 carries in those past three starts has still been the QB 25. Again, that game against the Lions, he was benched 
and then the QB 12. And so far as of this recording on Sunday night, the QB seven on the week. So those 10 carries per game are still providing a safe low end QB one rushing floor with added ceiling. If they ever get into a competitive shootout, but nonetheless, Devontae Smith, all of his production as well. Four catches, 66 yards, two touchdowns in the first half too. Jalen Hurts only needed to throw the ball three times. He had nine carries in the second half. So really, the Eagles took care of business in the first two quarters and then got out of there with a win due to the performance of their defense. Okay, so they got up throwing primarily, and then basically they they ran it out in the second half. You see Jordan Howard here going 12 for 83, Boston Scott. 11 for 81 on the grounds. You mentioned Jalen Hurts. He went 14 for 53. So kind of salting away the game in the second half with the running game. That's it. Uh, and Jordan, and Boston Scott, I should say, on the first drive was the primary option. A 16-yard run, a 17-yard screen. But still, Jordan Howard to lead the team in carries and rushing yards. His 25-yard run was his longest in the last four years, I believe the stat is. Um, in this game. So it still seems like Jordan Howard's involved now, although there were targets for the running backs in this one, there was not last week against the chargers, but Boston's got two targets. Kenneth Gainwell, one target. That's what makes me wonder if when Miles Sanders comes back, and I would assume that's this week, uh, injured reserve is up. They seem like he was going to be good to go the moment he was eligible to. I do wonder if Scott still sticks around more than we perceive with Jordan Howard, and thus it becomes a three-man committee. Something to watch, but yeah. I will say, you know, if you started Jordan Howard, I understand he didn't have reception, and he didn't have a rushing score. You know, 12 carries, 83 yards doesn't seem like much, but still getting the job done if you were in a pinch. On the Broncos' side, I mean, they've certainly in a passing script for most of this game, and a couple guys had productive games. Noah Fant goes 5 for 59 on six targets. Albert O goes three for 77 on three targets. Jerry Judy, six for 48 on nine. But Sutton had a disappointing game, two for 29. Um, so, and I, probably he's the most disappointing, but no one player, you know, had a really big game either. So kind of spread out here and the tight ends more involved than I would have, I would have expected to see both of them, you know, going over, uh, over 50 yards and actually the team's top two receivers. And by the way, Quickly, I should mention that Devonta Smith, team high six targets, tied Kez Watkins because uh, Dallas Goddard suffered a concussion removed mm. from the game in the first half. Otherwise, we saw last week, even against the Chargers, that target share is concerted to two players, Goddard and Smith. Now, if Goddard will see how long he's in the league's concussion protocol, it may become Smith, more importantly, but also Kez Watkins. We'll see. But overall, for the Broncos, yeah, the, the main takeaway is actually what has become of their passing game since Jerry Judy returned because we had Cortland Sutton as an important factor, averaging 9.1 targets and a 24.8% target share in six games while Judy was on injured reserve. But in four games now with Judy this year, Sutton is averaging just three targets and less than a 10% target share. Basically become literally a wide receiver four or five that's nearly unplayable. So we'll see if it corrects itself out of the bye because the Broncos do go on bye. Maybe they will get in concerted more. But even in this game with 29 receiving yards, one of those came on a 26-yard catch. And it didn't happen, his first reception, mm. until the second half. So basically, again, uninvolved in this offense. That's not great. Um, 
let's move to the backfield. And I know you're going to tell me that, you know, nothing's changed and <laughs> it's still these two guys and it's a split and it's going to keep Life is a split. flat circle. But, you know, you watch the game and Dave, just tell me how good Javante Williams looked. He's still good. I don't know what to say. He's still good. Uh, he's good every week. That's not the point, though. Um, even in this it game, it is the point. Even even in this game, getting a twenty-yard touchdown run called back for holding, but of course he wouldn't have made that run if the team wasn't holding because that's cheating. So I don't count that. That's not actionable. Um, I don't pay attention to that stat. But he is still explosive, and this is another instance in back-to-back games, right? Because Gordon had, I believe, Gordon had a fumble. And week nine as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. We've also seen in the past that he has had a fumble on the goal line, but also their usage has not changed. Like even in that fumble happening last week, you still see 10 touches for both in this one. Um, Javante Williams still, like you said, the more proven, the more explosive runner, but Melvin Gordon still looks good. Now the fumbles are a mistake. If we were messing up some pass blocking assignments, I would imagine like that's what would get Javante Williams involved more as well. But right now it's, essentially the same i'm sorry to, to report i i know it's the same i just wanted you to tell me more about you know you could you could maybe describe the run on the the one that got called back from holding you know i just i just want to hear how good he looked that's well, all the broncos cheated and javante williams ran for 20 yards and a touchdown that didn't count so oh yeah use that put it in your imaginary <laughs> bank and just uh <laughs> enjoy it yeah, well, eventually I think he'll take over this backfield, but it sounds like maybe, I think it's uh, like it's, it's he's, the, he's just the same. He's it's the same situation we've said for seven weeks now. Like trade for him. He's a he's a buy low because if he ever gets the chance, he'll explode. He's just got to get the chance, and he hasn't received the chance yet. So it's the same thing over and over again. It's a loop in hell. Just Javante Williams highlights and then his box score with three carries. It's just the same thing over and over again. Well, you know, we got it's Ramondre Stevenson. You know, our patience was rewarded. Stay yeah. patient. Well, until, We're gonna get it until David Harris comes back next week. But yeah, <laughs> hey, we only need the one game. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> we can. We'll get there with Javante Williams. Don't worry. But uh, John Daigle, thanks so much. The Lions tied the Steelers sixteen to sixteen in a game where Jared Goff did not throw for a touchdown, and he now just has one passing touchdown in his last five games. And to sum up how this passing offense looked, I'm going to quote from the last blurb on DeAndre Swift. Much like a black hole, the empty space of Detroit's passing game was only visible by the surrounding light of the Lions' backfield. It really was that abysmal to watch the Lions' passing game here, but the Lions' backfield really was kind of a light in the darkness here with DeAndre Swift having 130 yards on 33 rushes. We also had uh, Godwin I had two rushes for 56 yards and a touchdown, his first career touchdown, kind of filling in a little bit uh, once Jamar Jefferson was injured. But he, prior to that, had a 28-yard touchdown run, a very nice run where he burst through the line, carried a defender into the end zone, Ended up hurting himself, kind of awkwardly carrying the defender in. I believe it's an ankle injury, but he looked pretty good before that. Uh, only had three rushes for 41 yards. So those two big plays from the backup running backs, you know, and then Jefferson being out, uh, plus Williams not being active for this game, allowed DeAndre Swift to carry the ball 33 times. He was also targeted six times, only went three, uh, three receptions for five yards you know, uh, as a receiver, but DeAndre Swift, the fact that he could carry the ball 33 times, I think is a positive sign going forward. Even if 
we'd rather see him getting more targets because that's really where his strengths are. And at times he was really struggling as a runner in this game, but he did hit his stride at points. He had a really nice run where he hurdled a defender, got picked up some additional yards. I believe that was a 21-yard run. He did have his bright spots there. He didn't score a touchdown on a couple of uh, green zone opportunities, carries inside the 10, but he got that work. He did have an opportunity to get in the end zone here, you know, in a low scoring game. He's still getting a very valuable workload. So that was the bright spot with the Lions. That was really it. I mean, Amon Ross St. Brown had 61 yards leading the way, but this game went to overtime and Amon Ross St. Brown had 31 yards entering overtime. He had a 30 yard reception in overtime. So, you know, three for 31 in a, in four quarters of football as the leading receiver. It's really rough. Uh, Khalif Raymond, four for 29. Uh, TJ Hawkinson targeted once, did not record a reception. He was not injured in this game. You know, it's just a disaster. And Jared Goff, he did not have an interception in this game, but he really probably should have. He almost threw a really bad interception. He also had a would-be interception, but there was a defensive holding call. So overall, you know, it's just really difficult to have any enthusiasm for the Lions passing game. And, you know, I think TJ Hawkins is the only guy that we were at all enthusiastic about. And it's only because of the state of the tight end position. But, you know, to see him just kind of completely dud here uh, is, is very disconcerting. On the Steelers side, you know, we knew it wasn't going to be the best game for the Steelers with Mason Rudolph under center. It wasn't. Um, he had a, an interception that looked like it was probably a miscommunication. Um, he also uh, did throw for a touchdown. He found James Washington wide open in the corner of the end zone. Uh, pretty decent throw. Nice catch by Washington. Washington, though, only had two for 15. Um, he also had a long defensive pass interference uh, that he drew. That was probably you know one of the bigger and nicer plays by the by the Steelers passing offense all day. He also uh, committed, though, an offensive pass interference, as did Deontay Johnson. Um, he committed a pass interference. He also lost a fumble, which really probably should have lost the Steelers the game. Now, it wasn't like a huge critical error by Johnson. What happened was he got open, caught the ball, uh, and was getting additional yards. Pretty exciting play because he was getting down into Lions territory, setting the Steelers up for a game-winning field goal in overtime. But the cornerback that he had beaten came back around and was able to punch the ball out. So, you know, definitely a costly fumble from Johnson, but, you know, not like a huge error, not like a huge mental error or anything. Um, just a really good play by the cornerback. And then the Lions got in position for a game-winning field goal. Lions kicker badly missed it. Uh, it looked like it was blocked. It was one of those kicks where you assume it had to have been tipped, and it wasn't. Just a really bad kick. It was a snowy game, um, not not hugely snowy, but the conditions were not great. So that probably had something to do with it. Um, but that's kind of how we ended up in a tie here. They, the two teams trading back and forth, trading back and forth. That was the one point in overtime where we thought we might get a win for one of these two teams, but it's a missed kick. Najee Harris, 26 rushes for 105 yards. He only through the air went four for 28 on, on four targets, you know, decent usage, but not like huge. There was upside here for eight, nine, 10 targets. I think part of that um, 
upside went to Ray Ray McLeod. He had 12 targets, nine receptions for 63 yards, and is a bit of a hybrid wide receiver running back type of player. So his increased involvement with Chase Claypool out this week, probably not great for Najee Harris, something to keep in mind going forward because it seems like Chase Claypool's probably going to be out again. Pat Fryermuth had nine targets for uh, five receptions and 31 yards. I think very bullish for him going forward, assuming that Big Ben is back because Eric Ebron had two targets here, two receptions and 13 yards. So Eric Ebron was back yet running well behind Pat Fryermuth, which is a very bullish sign for him going forward. And then Deontay Johnson, the fact that he got 13 targets, you know, I think is a very good sign for him. Um, you know, nothing has changed in the design of this offense, even when it goes to Mason Rudolph with Roethlisberger back. We know that Deontay Johnson is going to get peppered with targets with Chase Claypool likely out again. But that'll do it for the Lions and the Steelers. That'll do it. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Please make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes and check out all the other podcasts that we got for you. Daigle and I will be back on Monday during halftime of the Monday Night Football game for the Waiver Wire show. We also have Denny and Pat doing a show on Tuesdays. We've got a two-part preview show Wednesday and Thursday. We've got Kyle and Daigle on Friday doing DFS building blocks. We've got a preview show on Sunday before the games kick off. Uh, There's also now another podcast, a DFS review show uh, that Daigle and Kyle are doing uh, Sunday nights. And then, of course, we got the recap podcast next week, recapping week 11. I hope to see you then. Thanks so much. Have a great week. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.